You are listening to Building the Church in the City, a Bay City Church sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. For this and more video and audio resources, visit baycity.church. Okay, so let me catch you up to speed. Nehemiah is a Jew, right? The Jews were taken in captivity uh, for 141 years, right? The 141 years ago, we, we find Nehemiah uh, well, not Nehemiah, Nehemiah's people, rather, in captivity. And they were taken out of Jerusalem, and they were brought into foreign lands. And so fast forward that 141 years, and we find Nehemiah, who is a, essentially a cupbearer to the king. He's a cupbearer to a, a king, Artaxerxes, a foreign king in the capital city of Susa in the Persian region. And he essentially is a well-treated slave, but God puts it on his heart to go back and rebuild his great city, Jerusalem. And God grants him the, his ability to go back, and so he leaves uh, that area with resources and with people, and he gets to the, wall, the walls, the, the walls are the walls that protect the city from outsiders, and so he was going to start building that wall, and as he starts building that wall, conflict arises. Some of that conflict is internal. He beats it. Some of it's external. They end up, the Israelites beat that as well, and so now we find himself just at the almost finished point of his wall, just at this point we're finally, we're finished. So if you've been with us every week, you'd be like, man, when is this wall going to get done? Well, it is a big wall, but he finally, they're getting to the point where it's almost done. And they're getting to a crucial stage. They're getting to a very crucial stage. Now, failing in every previous attempt to stop Nehemiah's work, these goons, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and another guy, they all show up to stop the work again, again. It's been several times, if you've heard these names over and over again, some of you are like, I'm not married, but I'm going to name my kid Sanballat now. I've heard it so much. Praise God, it's a great name. Now, Sanballat, Tobiah, there's some, Geshem the Arabite, maybe. Okay, there's plenty of different names out there for you to name your kids. So that's beside the point. But nonetheless, these guys are showing up last-ditch efforts to stop the wall again. Last-ditch efforts to stop the wall again. And you're going to find in your life, as you are trying to accomplish your vision for what your life is about, when God is doing things specifically for you, and when you're trying to help build your city, that there are going to be last-ditch attempts and efforts to stop you as well. You're going to see this all of the time. Now, whether that's collectively with a church like Bay City to, to, to help change the city spiritually, or whether it's personal with your own soul work, there are going to be last-ditch efforts and attempts to thwart you, and the attack will ramp up. Now, the most common form, obviously, as we're talking about last, last, the most common last-ditch effort is often diversion and distraction. Diversion and distraction. Now, like Nehemiah, maybe at this point in your life, whatever enemy you have, they haven't been able to make you quit. Maybe it's internal, maybe it's external. You haven't, it hasn't made you quit. They haven't been able to make you change your mind. You're still pursuing personal growth. You're still pursuing a faith walk. You're still pursuing that new job. You're still pursuing something. They can't scare you, but what your enemies will try to do is to divert and distract you. That's what's going to happen. Now, I thought, because we all kind of think of distraction as kind of like a lightweight thing, I get it. I want to give a definition. Okay, here's the definition of distraction. Definition of distraction is a distraction is something that prevents one from giving full attention to something else, okay? Prevents one from giving full attention to something else. So it could be a small thing. It could be a very large thing. You could have death in your family. You could have job loss. You can have something like that. Or you could have something as small as your phone or your, you know, something else, something really small. 
It's something that keeps you off of the main thing. Now, for Christians, they, we actually believe that there are spiritual forces as well that can be distractions on top of that. So not only do we have physical distractions, we actually think that there can be spiritual forces that do not like good that ultimately want to distract as well. The Bible often refers to these spiritual forces as like the enemy, right? We, you might think of Satan and demons. Now, if these things are, if, these, if Satan and demons are real, which Christians do believe they are, that these forces do not like good and they do not want good to ensue. Now, there's a great story that kind of allegorizes this. Maybe you guys have heard of a guy named C.S. Lewis. He wrote The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. You might have seen that movie, but he writes, a, uh, he writes a, an allegory story called The Screwtape Letters. If you've heard of The Screwtape Letters, it's one of my absolute favorite stories, but essentially, The Screwtape Letters are about a demon, an uncle demon named Screwtape, so, he, and he's writing letters to his nephew demon, Wormwood. Okay, follow me, okay? Don't check out here. I swear it gets better. So Uncle Screwtape, okay, we're going to call him, is writing letters to Wormwood. And Wormwood's job is to distract his patient. And his patient essentially is one of us. He's assigned, each demon in the story is assigned to a person. And uh, Wormwood's job is to deceive and distract the patient, one of us, from receiving what God has for it in its life, from following God's mission. Do you follow me? Now, uh, Screwtape is writing from hell. And he's writing a letter to Wormwood who's distracting the person. And I, I thought it would be great to kind of follow exactly the way Screwtape thinks about us and distraction. Because ultimately, even though this is an allegory, C.S. Lewis is a Christian and pulls a lot from Christian scripture, and it's a great way for us to see how they think. Look at this quote with me. He's talking to Wormwood here. He says, Wormwood, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his, that's the patient, wandering attention. You no longer need a good book, which he really likes to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods if that will work. Now, maybe some of you aren't reading the newspaper's advertisements, okay? But maybe you're scroll clicking on sponsored ads in Facebook, okay? Let's, let's insert that for this old analogy. Now, you got any, maybe some of you are reading the newspaper. Praise God, you're reading the newspaper. Your eyes are probably good. For the rest of us, we're looking at our phones, okay? But the enemy will use anything to keep people from doing good, God-honoring work for the city. Now, you don't have to be a Christian to do, in Christian's mind, God-honoring work. You can serve and do great things for your city, but ultimately, even those things, the enemy, Satan, does not like those things. And he can use anything at all to distract us from doing that, that work. Now, by the way, it's getting increasingly easier to, to get distracted, isn't it, right? It's getting increasingly easier. You ever go into an Instagram coma, I call it? It's when you, like, you look at your phone and you wake up 45 minutes later. You're like, whoa, where am I? And you're starving because it's been three hours, right? Very easy to get distracted today. It's very easy to keep us away from important, purposeful work. Keep us busy. There's all sorts of distractions. Now, let me ask this question, because I think this is probably telling. What is it in your life that you're doing that's keeping you busy but not purposeful? What is it in your life that you're doing that's keeping you really busy but not purposeful? Ask yourself that question here for a second as you think through this, this sermon. Now, luckily for us, Nehemiah shows us once more just how to deal with diversions and distractions spiritually and from other people. And I hope 
that this sermon is very practical for you. I hope it's very timely for you. And so if you're hoping for a sermon that's up in the clouds, I hope we get there a little bit, but ultimately this is going to be incredibly practical. Now, let me just ask this question because I think a lot of us are thinking this. What forms will distractions and diversions appear? Like how are these going to show up and manifest themselves? Okay, so I'm going to give you six ways they're going to show up. Now, there's, there's more than that, but I'm going to give you six to start. And then as we're going through this, I think you're going to begin to think about other distractions and diversions that are keeping you off of serving God for your city, for the Bay Area, and ultimately for yourself and your family, okay? Great. So what forms are they going to, or what forms will they, will distractions and diversions appear? First one, they're going to come in the form of fear. Fear. Now, hold on a second. A lot of you may be thinking, how is fear a distraction? How is fear a distraction? Because ultimately it's an emotion, right? I mean, I, so I'm, I'm afraid of some things. It makes sense. But how is fear a distraction? Actually, fear can stop progress dead in its tracks. And sometimes an enemy or, or someone that, that's trying to stop your work, either physically or spiritually or even yourself, mentally, will utilize fear to stop the progress that God's trying to do in your life. It will happen, Okay. Look at verse 1 with me in chapter 6. If you have your Bible or your app, it'll be here on the screen as well. Now, when Sandal and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, like Larry, Curly, and Moe, they all show up, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not yet set up the doors and the gates, Sandalot and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together at Hekekapraphim. That's probably the right pronunciation if I... Scholars believe that's probably right, yeah. In the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. Now, if you follow the story, you know that these goons have been bothering Nehemiah constantly. It is quite plausible that Nehemiah may have heard them say this and been incredibly afraid, been incredibly scared. Now, it's possible that he could totally justify stopping his work to finally just say, you know what, I've had it, it's been months, it's been 60, 70, 80 days of working on this wall, these guys keep showing up, I, I just, I can't handle the stress, I can't handle the pressure, I, I, I'm gonna go ahead and shut this down, I'm gonna find somebody else that could probably finish the wall. That's plausible, right? Now I'll stop and say that not all fear is bad just to start, right? Fear actually can be a good thing. In fact, almost once a week, if you, at your house, you may hear a noise, middle of the night, and it's dark, and you hear, you're like, oh, you get out of your bed, some of you grab your baseball bat, and you, you, you wander around your house like Scooby-Doo, and you're quiet, and you're looking for a ghost, and you're like, you're going to kill it, and some of you are hiding under your blankets. Either way, fear is going to trigger you to do something to protect yourself, right? Fear can actually be a good thing, protecting your family or protecting yourself, okay? Either way, fear could be totally a positive thing, but bad Fear will paralyze us when we're supposed to act. Bad, good fear will cause us to act. Bad fear will paralyze us when we're supposed to act. Now, there's all sorts of forms of fear, right? You can have PTSD from former attacks. Some of you have been there. Nehemiah certainly could have been there. Nehemiah could have been just, man, this, has been the, this is the fifth time Sam Ballad has shown up. I'm stressed out. He may just, his heart might start beating fast at the sight of another potential attack. I've been there myself. I've been there. I, I, I've been attacked in certain ways, particularly in ministries. And, and any time there's a sight of something like that happening again, get nervous, get afraid, get scared. It happens. 
Now, some of us can be fearful of expectations, right? Maybe, maybe Sam Ball and Tobiah or Geshem, the Arabi, they've got expectations on Nehemiah. Some of us may be fearful of meeting those expectations. We may be looking at those expectations and going, man, there is just no shot I'm going to reach those this month. I can't believe my boss has got this, the quota is just so high. Or, man, I don't know what to expect out of my, my wife anymore or my husband anymore. I just don't know when a spouse is going to come. Right? I have no clue what my grades are going to look like this semester. Fear of expectations. Some of us have fear of criticism. When critics show up, we, it's just confrontational. We close up. It's hard to deal with. Critics are difficult. Man, I, I don't want to deal with critics anymore. That might cause us to stop working in the way that God is calling us to work. I remember a, a quick story for those of you that, that, that had a guess. I did play football, and uh, I remember playing on one specific team, and I had a, just a horrible, horrible, horrible coach. I mean, this guy was the worst motivational speaker I've ever heard in my life. And on top of that, usually just spoke to me directly and it was not fun. So much so to the point where I would show up to meetings uh, and I would be afraid. I'd be, I'd be terrified that as soon as he saw whatever I did on the field, he was going to criticize me, yell at me, belittle me. He's going to make me feel stupid. He was going to shame me in front of my teammates, which often happened. And I remember after one game once, I, I, uh, before our meetings the next week, I decided to throw on uh, the, the game tape and watch some of it to see, you know, how did I do? I, I want to get a little bit of a sneak peek before I go into meetings. And I remember watching every single thing I did, and I was just cringing. I was cringing. I was like, oh, he's going to hate that. Oh, I can't believe I did that. He's going to yell at me for that. And everything I thought about was directly about my relationship to him. Total fear totally kept me from being the player that I was supposed to be. Totally kept that from happening. But in order to overcome fear, in order to overcome fear from distracting us, we need to find a greater fear. Yeah, so hang with me for a second. You actually need to find a greater fear, something to fear more than the fear of expectations and meeting the needs of others. And that thing for the Christian is we call fear of the Lord. And so fear in the Bible is often used, and if, you, if you're not familiar with reading the Bible, you might read it and say, fear, we're supposed to be scared of God? Well, actually, fear in the scripture actually means a healthy respect and reverence for, okay? So give you a quick example. My son likes to steal cookies during our city group, okay? I walk in on my son, he's stealing cookies. He knows he's not supposed to steal cookies. He steals many anyway. He hides them under his pillow, his bed's disgusting, we have to wash his sheets. So what I, as a good father, want to do is I want to cut that off of the head. So as I see him stealing cookies, I say, hey, what are you doing over there? And he goes, <gasps> he catches me. I can't, I, it's a good fear. Why? Because my son, every time he steals cookies, his mother can attest, he gets a stomach ache. And his stomach hurts, and he complains about his stomach ache, and then his bed's messy, and there's crumbs all over the house. And I'm trying to stop all of that with one fell swoop. Good fear. We want a good fear, and that's what helps us. When I moved teams off of after I was at that, that, the team where I had the really hard coach, I moved to a new team, and I had a new coach. And my new coach was actually a very nice man, but I didn't know that yet. So what I did was I watched the game film before I went, and I was freaking out again. Oh my gosh, this dude's gonna kill me. Oh, what am I doing? I look so dumb. Oh, gosh, I got those wristbands. I look so stupid. What is he gonna say about all of this? And I get in there and he says, 
hey, Eddie, that's a good job. And I was like, what? I was bracing for like impact. He's like, no, that, that's a great job. That's a great job. Hey, I have all the confidence in you that you're going to get the job done exactly the way I believe you're going to get it done. It's like, whoa, really? I developed a healthy fear for a good coach because a good coach I respected and had reverence for. I wanted to meet his needs because he was good, not because he was an evil dictator. You see what I'm saying at? Fear can help, can stop us from accomplishing our goals and we want to not use that fear, and we got, rather we need to leverage that into good fear for something greater, and for the Christian, that is fear of the Lord. Another thing that can stop us, non-urgent conflict. Non-urgent conflict is another distraction and diversion, and this happened all the time. Now, Nehemiah knows this conflict all too well, because he's been dealing with it the entire time. And Nehemiah, like us, can get derailed by non-important conflict that are creating drama, that's creating problems and issues with the drama kings and the drama queens that are riling everybody up all for nothing. Question, how many of you have spent hours, hours walking through a conflict with people, with someone, on the phone, in person, and after a couple hours felt like, you know what, that was totally not worth it, that was totally worthless of a conversation? Happens all the time. All of us have, have sat in conversations where you're like, oh man, I feel like we're just blowing this wildly out of proportion. And it wastes time and it detracts off of important things. Non-important conflict happens. Now, we must have the courage to get off of these non-important conflicts. You have to get rid of them. Now, I wanna give you a peridium to think about, okay? There's things that are urgent and there's things that are important. You have things that are urgent, things that are important. Now, you can have something that's important and urgent. You have something that's important and urgent, you should deal with that, right? Somebody's in the hospital, somebody's sick, I gotta deal with this right away. But oftentimes you can have things that are important, but not urgent. You ever heard that, that thing? Hey, this is important, this is coming down the pipe at work. In the next 60 to 70 days, we're gonna have to be thinking about this process. Great, this is important, I'm gonna set this aside so I can continue to do what I'm supposed to do. But sometimes we have things that are urgent and not important. Urgent and not important. That usually comes in the form of uh, notifications on your phone, okay? So you might get a Slack beep, or you get a, a text message, or you get a LinkedIn notification. I mean, my, for crying out loud, we get so many things, beep, 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 and we get, we're, reaching for the, we're reaching for our phones. We think we feel a buzz on our thighs, and our phone's on the table, and so we're, we're reaching for things. You don't even have it. You look like, a, you look like you're on drugs. You're just like, what? <laughs> Relax. And, and Silicon Valley has gotten all of us so crazy, we're, we're addicted to urgent but not important things. And then ultimately you also have non-important and non-urgent things. And we deal with that a lot as well, and we have to be able to discern what's actually important so we can deal with, what, so we can deal with them, but then also continue with our vision and our mission that God has given us. <clears throat> Another dis potential distraction and diversion deception, pleasure-seeking, pleasure-seeking. Well, pleasure's good. The world is great. In the Bay Area, there's a lot of fun stuff to do here. A lot of great stuff to do here, right? Like, there's hikes, there's beaches, there's restaurants, there's people, there's lots of great stuff to do here. You can go fishing, you can go hiking, you can drive and go snowboarding, you can go to concerts and festivals, travel, vacations, cell phone, technology, and the like, all of it at your fingertips. All fun and stuff to deal with. But, unknown to us, sometimes, we accidentally can get caught up 
busying ourselves with pleasure-seeking, accidentally leaving behind the vision and mission that God has given us for our lives. And so what happens is pleasure-seeking becomes the ultimate thing in our life, enjoying life becomes the most important thing, and God's vision falls behind, or the vision for your life falls behind. So you get caught up enjoying, 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 enjoying. You become hedonistic, okay? That's a big word that means just ultimately all and fully about pleasure and enjoyment. This happens all the time. Now, hold on a second. Fun is good. I'm not condemning fun. We should have fun. Some of us don't have fun enough. Some of, we need to enjoy life. Some of us need to enjoy it a lot more. But if vacations and hikes and pub crawls and trips, they all become, and they all cut into your ability to love and serve other people, to stay on mission for what God's called you to, or to better your own soul, you ultimately will be distracted and diverted into something else, and you will not accomplish what you're longing to accomplish. Now, there's a guy that also had to deal with this situation in the Bible. His name is Jesus. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, the Bible says, Hebrews 4.15, yet without sin, Okay, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. He's tempted to divert, tempted to distract all of the time. But never so much so as what happens in the desert. In Matthew chapter four, he, he goes to a desert to fast and pray to ready himself for his three years of ministry before he goes to the cross and is crucified. And the enemy shows himself and he shows up. And what does he do? He offers Jesus something. Matthew four, eight through 10. Again, the devil took him, that's Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He showed him all of the mountains of the Bay Area. He showed him all of the water and all of the slopes and all of the beaches and all of the restaurants. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, Jesus' temptation here by Satan was to ignore what God, the vision that God had given him, that he was supposed to go to the cross, and then just enjoy what the world had. And that was the temptation there, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And Jesus successfully, better than any of us ever could, avoids the schemes and stays on track and is not deceived or diverted, okay? Pleasure-seeking, another, another form of deception and diversion to come, a career, Career. Now, wait, hold on a second. Don't get upset. Okay. Wait, wait a second. Whoa. Just relax. Okay. Let me, let me explain this. Has anyone here heard of a MacGuffin? A MacGuffin. Does anyone study film? No? MacGuffin. A MacGuffin in a movie is an object or event or person, right, that, that the characters in the story greatly value so much so that the entire movie uh, wraps around this, despite the fact that that's not important to the overall plot of the story. You get what I'm saying? And oftentimes we get stuck with career MacGuffins. Career MacGuffins. Despite the thing, despite that our careers being incredibly important overall, oftentimes our careers aren't the very focal point of everything we're doing. And so what happens is we busy ourselves with our career, busy ourselves with our job, and our peripherals go by the wayside and we forget what's most important. Ultimately, our career becomes ultimate. Now, career is a good thing. Career is a really good thing. But distraction and deception's job and its goal is to take good things and make them ultimate things, okay? It's to take good things and make them ultimate things so that what's really ultimate gets left behind. That's the job. You see, the devil can't create. Satan can't create. 
Uh, even a few angry people can't create. God only can create. But what they can do is they can use smoke and mirrors, and they can deceive and decept to get you to think that something else is more important outside of what God has for you. You get what I'm saying? It makes perfect sense. We must order our priorities well so that something good doesn't become ultimate in our lives. Another deceiving, a deception or a distraction or diversion in our lives, empty threats. Empty threats from other people. Nehemiah knew this very well. Look at verse five with me. In the same way, Sanballat, he's back for the fifth time, it says, my goodness, sent his servant to me. This guy has got nothing better to do. Can we just say that? Like, it's always Sanballat first, too. Like, he's the guy. Like, guys, you believe this dude? He's, all his time is dedicated to Nehemiah. Sent for the fifth time his servant to me with an open letter in hand. And it was written, and it was written, quote, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it. You see how he need, needs a cosign right there? And Geshem also said that you and the Jews intend to rebel, that this is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem that there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Now, there's a lot going on here, but let, let me point out a few things. First, Sam Ballot sends an open letter, an open letter. Now, many of you have maybe gone on a blog website and seen an open letter to Bill O'Reilly. I don't know, an open letter to Kesha. I don't know. But an open letter to somebody. You see a blog. Well, in this day, letters were actually sent sealed with wax, and they had usually a ring stamp, and it was to be broken by the person that saw it. But if you were to send an open letter, it was really a sign of disrespect it was also a sign of gossip, that you wanted other people to read the letter and that you wanted other people to know what you were charging them with. And so Nehemiah is being disrespected now, and, th and now he's threatening them, and he's lying, saying that you're gonna, you've got a prophet, you're going to establish a king, and that you're going to rebel. All of these are lying. You ever been accused of something that's just simply unfounded, untrue, not true at all? Like there's no, an empty claim altogether? Does that happen to you? It's happening to Nehemiah. Now, this could influence Nehemiah's family, right? It could influence his followers. They may read this letter, and they may get upset, and they may leave. They may say, I'm not, I don't believe, Nehemiah, is this true? And there's, there's crossfire, and people are leaving Nehemiah's church. They're leaving his family. They're leaving his circle of friends. They don't trust him anymore. Now, this is a quick story. I, I was at a, a coffee shop recently. It was actually quite hilarious, but I was there, and uh, the guy in front of me is ordering his coffee, and he gets his coffee cup. And one of the baristas from behind, because I don't know, somebody, any of you baristas in here? Sometimes baristas aren't super friendly. It's no big deal. I try to always brighten their day as best I can to no avail, but I do try. And the, the barista, the other barista from, the, from, from behind the counter reaches out to the other guy, and she says, hey, are you Chris? And he says, yeah. She's like, you need to take down that Yelp review. It was terrible. Now, he used a lot worse language. She used a lot worse language. But she essentially chastised him for writing a bad Yelp review about their service. And the guy said, well, you know, I, I feel like every time I come in, nobody smiles at me. I just was telling the truth. And uh, I really like the coffee. It's just that, you know, people aren't very nice here. <laughs> right? And she says, you need to take it down because it was rude and it's untrue. And you need to stop lying about us. And he's like, you know what? You have a good day. I'm leaving. And he just walks out. And so while he's walking out, I'm looking up the Yelp review. I'm like, what did this guy say? 
And I'm like, I gotta find this out. Because I'm all this, I'm taking my time. I don't even use cream. I'm pouring cream in my coffee. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm dragging my feet. And so I find it. He gave him two stars. That's pretty good based on what I just heard. And uh, so he's, he comes back in. He says, you know what? I want to talk to your manager. I want to talk to your manager. And neither of them answer. And so he says, no, who is the manager here? I'm a paying customer. I would like to know who the manager is. And the girl that's at the cash register starts getting a little nervous because she's like, this isn't my fight, although she isn't very nice either. But she's like, I, she's like well, I think if you go to the, you know, the other coffee shop, they might be able to, to help you with the management. He's like, you're not going to tell me who your manager is? And he says, are you the manager? She's like, no, I'm not the manager. And she's, they're, 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 one of them's scared, the other one is angry, and she starts yelling, you don't even know us, you should not be putting Yelp reviews about us, you have no clue who we are, we're nice people, if you got to know us, you would know. And I'm, I mean, this is like insane, like good television, right? Like, you cannot write this stuff. And then the next line is even more telling. He walks out and he says, you know what? I'm never coming here again. You know what? I heard your owner is a pedophile. And then he walks out. And I was like, whoa. That escalated quickly. All that to say, based on the fact that it's just hilarious, I had to tell somebody, uh, that's an open letter. That is an open letter if I've ever seen one. It is a sign of disrespect. And customers, if it's not true, like myself, are absolutely going to think twice about maybe going to a potential pedophile's coffee shop, okay? We're going to think like that based on that open letter. That's what empty threats can do. So how do you get around empty threats? How do you get around them? Because they're going to happen to all of us. We will need to live our lives completely above reproach. Completely above reproach. What does above reproach mean? It means that you live your life in such a way that as you live and people hear things about you, they say, there's no way that's true about that person. There's absolutely no chance that that person would say that because I know them, because they've, they've cared for me. I've, they've been in my home. I've served them dinner. They've served me dinner. We've been playing. We've eaten restaurants together. We've gone to games together. We've, we, we're friends. There's just no chance. You have to live your life in such a way that when rumors hit, you've lived your life in such a way that no one will believe them. Okay, here's my last diversion or deception for you. Acceptance. Acceptance. Now, this is you or I pursuing acceptance, okay? Now, acceptance becomes diversion because longing for acceptance can divert us away from what's most important and onto other people's opinions and thoughts about us, okay? So we, we stop focusing on God's vision for, for San Francisco, for Bay City Church, for your life, for your family, for your place of work, and instead you're worried about Joe and the other cubicles' opinion of you, your boss's opinion, your family's opinion, your wife, your husband's opinion, your boyfriend, girlfriend's opinion of you. And that's becomes, that consumes you. Now, look at verse 1 again with me. We already read this, but let's go back. Verse 1 and 2. This will help bring some light to what I'm talking about here. It says, Now when Sambal and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, that there was no breach left in it, skip to verse 2, Sambal and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hecapraphim in the plain of Ono. Now, we know from historical documents that this guy, Samballot, even though he is a goon, he is actually the governor of Samaria. So he's a big dog causing problems. He's an important person. Now, Nehemiah possibly could be thinking like this because the wall's almost complete, completed. He might think, you know what? Maybe the reason they're reaching out to me it's like I got my stuff in order, probably. I got the wall built. 
You know, and they got, you know, Geshem the Arab. He's looking good in his garb. And maybe it's time for me to get a seat at the table. Maybe finally in the region, we're going to all come together. We're going to meet and we're going to start discussing some, some plans for the future. And so Nehemiah starts going, man, maybe, it's, maybe these guys like me. Maybe I'm one of the guys now. He starts feeling good about himself. Guys, there is a tremendous pressure in our society today to make all kinds of personal sacrifices in our lives that in the end do us no good in order just to be accepted or approved. Happens all the time. We live our lives in such a way that we, we start bending over backwards for other people. There's pressure to conform, constrict, delete your tweets, delete your Facebook posts, begin this on the straight and narrow. Don't say anything countercultural. Don't say anything negative about anything. Try to stay firmly in the lane. Affirm all people all the time. Do not use any bad language in any respect to anybody about anything. You get what I'm saying? And we're bending. And in the, no, in the end, we're taking ourselves off of what God has called us to and onto what other people think. Now, I want you to ask yourself a question as we near the end of this sermon. Where do you get your acceptance from? Where does your acceptance come from? Because the answer to this will actually help you avoid acceptance problems. If you get your acceptance from your boyfriend, if you get your acceptance from your husband, your wife, if you get your acceptance from your job or from your work or from your score on a video game, whatever it might be, if it's not from a greater transcendent purpose that you're pursuing or a person, God, that you're longing for, you ultimately have issues with acceptance because all other things are created and fallible and broken and will set unrealistic expectations of you or set the bar so low that you never have to grow at all. You see what I'm saying? Acceptance can be a huge issue. Now, these are many of the six, there's six ways of many ways that we can be diverted or distracted, right? These are, these are the six ways. But ultimately, there's a point in all of this that we can be pulled off track from serving the Bay Area, serving our own soul, and serving our neighbors. It's totally possible. And our friend, Screwtape, jumps back in with us here for a second, and he agrees. Look what he says to his demon friend, Wormwood, as he's trying to get his patient, one of us, off track from serving. It says, you can make him waste his time or her time, not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about, on subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return so that at last he may say, quote, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I should do nor what I liked. Do you find yourself in that category right now? Now this is the big fear that we end up doing neither what we should be doing nor what we even enjoyed. And that's the temptation of diversion and distraction. Okay, what's the result of not succumbing to diversion? What's the result of this? Now, if we can avoid diversion and avoid distraction, a beautiful situation actually does result. And Nehemiah has one last run-in with these clowns, the scumbags, trying to divert him from working on the wall. Okay, verse 10. Now, when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple. He's going to try to trap him. Check this out. For they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Uh-oh. But I said, Nehemiah says, should, I, as a, a, should such a man as I run away? 
and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood, he says, and saw that God had not sent them, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat, again, for real, had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in a way and sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Another guy was trying to trick him. This, same, this other guy, this is, a pro, this is a prophet of God, hired by some goons, trying to trick him. They were, he was hired to lie, to give false prophecy. Now they told him to lock himself in the temple, probably to mock him for believing a false prophecy or potentially to kill him. Now, what is Nehemiah's response? Quickly, verse 14, he prays. He prays. He just says, remember Tobiah and Sambalet, oh my God. He prays. Nehemiah's a man of prayer. Do you get that? We see this guy pray in almost every scenario. Um, your life, if you are, for those that are a Christian, I'll preface. If you're a Christian, this isn't a way to shame you, but it's just a, way, it's just a reality of, 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 of life in ministry or life as a Christian. And by the way, if you're a Christian, we're all in ministry. The reality is that if you don't pray, you'll die. Prayer is a necessary form of talking to God. It's the necessary form of talking to God. And hey, if you feel like, I feel like I'm doing well, if you don't pray, you don't like, you don't like, you know, become an evil, you know, truck driver who runs people off the road if you don't pray. You actually just die really slowly. Your prayer life, your spiritual life, it dies over time slowly. Nehemiah recognizes this and he prays and he doesn't bite. Now, what's the result of his prayer and how he stays the course? He doesn't bite on this. Verse 15 says, the wall was finished. It was finished. The wall was finished. Praise God. Verse 16, and all of our enemies heard of it. All the nations around us were, they were afraid and fell greatly on their own esteem. Wouldn't that be great? They all knew, okay? They perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Praise God. They recognized that if they could avoid successfully all of those traps, God must be with them. Isn't that beautiful? So what's the result? Finished work. Finished work. Finished work is the result of a person who is unmoved by distraction. Finished work is, is the result of a person unmoved by distraction. Many of us have half finished, half cocked hopes, dreams, ideas, thoughts, job opportunities that we haven't acted on, and we're wondering why we haven't fulfilled any of them. And perhaps the reason is that we have been unknowingly diverted in distraction, distracted from what God has actually called us to. You all and myself may all be actually diverted and distracted right now. You may be in the midst of a distraction that's sending you off a fork in the road, not fulfilling what God has for you in your life, or not fulfilling a transcendent purpose for you. You may be tailspinning as we speak. Now you may say, what's the big deal? I get off track, there's no big deal, I get back on, there's grace, yada, 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 I'll fix it. Well, our friend Screwtape again shows up for us, and he says to Wormwood, to, about us, he says, you, you will say that these are very small sins, but do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. That's God. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than playing cards if playing cards will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. The smallest diversions 
from God's mission lead to a cumulative effect of being away from him and of being away from what's important. You get me? So where does this leave us? Because this feels like the stakes are kind of high. In some ways, they are high, right? They were high for Nehemiah. But hey, I want to remind you of something as we close, that Jesus was tempted to divert his plans as well to save humanity, that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He was, he was made to become diverted and deceived so that he wouldn't accomplish what he was trying to accomplish. But there was no time greater than what he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is a moment where Jesus is standing. He's mere hours away from his crucifixion. And he knows it. And he's stressed out. And he's sweating blood. He's anxious. Maybe he's worried about acceptance, right? Maybe he's fearful. All of the distractions, diversions that we all experience, Jesus is experiencing them in that moment. He, he's so stressed out that he was sweating blood. And then at a moment of desperation, he actually cries out to God the Father. And he says, God, if it is possible, Father, will you take this cup from me? Jesus actually cries out to God the Father and saying, Lord, will you, will you, will you take this from me? And there's this tension in God's character right here as he's about to experience sin and the anguish of what's happening here. But Jesus doesn't bite. He then says, well, nonetheless, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus doesn't bite. But the craziest part about this, despite the fact that comfort, pleasure, rest might have been in Jesus' mind, is that he didn't do it for himself. He did it for us. God's not asking you all to do something he hasn't done himself with way more on the line. And with, with the power that you have, you have the ability to avoid it easier than he did. His ability to not divort when the stakes were highest takes all of the pressure off us to live our lives for him without distraction or diversion. So now we press on in mission, not in fear that we're gonna fail and not certainly in acceptance of other people. We don't press on in those, but we press on in freedom because we know whatever the ramifications are of our actions that Jesus Christ has ultimately accomplished the greatest form of victory in our lives. And now we have power to avoid distraction and freedom so that distraction has no power over us. You get that? You may feel weary, you may feel tired, but you actually have access to someone who can help you stay the course. You have access to one right now in this moment. You have access to one that will keep you on course, that will give you rest, give you energy, give you power give you all you need, and when you fail, and when you are diverted, and when you are deceived, he gives you grace to allow you back on the track. That no matter what happens, for those in Jesus, you are good. Some of us, we need access to that power. We don't have access to it. Today's the day. Today's the day. You want access to a power that can keep you on track in your life that you never had? You have that access in Jesus. Let's pray.